don't know if you saw it, but there was a recent story in the Washington Post about a hit new TV series, This Is Us. I tried to resist watching it for a long time, but my wife was always watching This Is Us. I prefer to watch a show like Lethal Weapon, the remake of Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, because... You know, it's distracting. You just see stuff blow up, and you have sarcastic humor, and I need a break from ordinary life. This Is Us is way too real for me. Now I watch it with my wife with a box of Kleenexes, and we sit there and cry. It's a very successful series. It traces the life of three siblings, and it shows flashbacks to various seasons in their childhood and the marriage of their parents. It goes back and forth between the 1980s and 2016. There's a collision of the past and the present. And through this series, you see their previous scars and you see uh, mercies that were shown them that made them the people that they are. As they reflect back on their childhood, they don't know whether to stew in the regrets and missed opportunities or to see behind all the mess of their life a gracious plot. Now, why is this series so successful? Well, in this story, Russell Moore suggests that the secret to This Is Us is less about ogling some other strange, dysfunctional family as it is about seeing our own. I think that's true of the story of Joseph as well. It's successful. It's popular. Because in the story of Joseph, we not only see his dysfunctional family, but we see our dysfunctional family as well. And it's encouraging to us because as we see the dysfunction of Joseph, we see the plot behind the plot. We know how it ends and it encourages us. And the question that all of us ask as we rehearse our previous regrets and we look back on our, choice, uh, our childhood and the choices that we have made, we wonder, is there a gracious plot in our lives as well? Well, good news this week. We finally move on to the fulfillment in the life of Joseph. We begin to see how grace has transformed his life and we are going to begin to see in chapters 42 through 45, how this sovereign God has a gracious plot to not only change the life of Joseph, but to change the life of his family as well. So we're going to just look at two chapters this week, chapter 42 and 43, and then we'll do part two next week of chapters 44 and 45. In our brief time this morning, I want you to consider two points from these two chapters. The path and the response, the path of grace and the response of repentance. So the first thing to look at is the path of beautiful discipline. We read in the first five verses as the story continues, you may remember that Joseph had predicted a famine in the land of Egypt and now that famine has come to fruition. And the famine wasn't just in Egypt, but the famine was over all the earth, even in Canaan, and even Joseph's family, Jacob and his brothers, they were experiencing this incredible hardship as well. Jacob heard that there was food for sale in Egypt, so he sends ten of Joseph's brothers to buy grain so that they would not 
die. They were starving. It was a desperate situation. But he didn't send all of the brothers, right? We read in verse 4 that he kept back Benjamin because he feared that harm might happen to him since losing Joseph, Rachel's other son, Benjamin, was now his favorite. It's 20 years later, and this family is still dysfunctional. What do we see? We see Jacob, the foolish father, still playing favorites with one son. Look at that. He doesn't seem to be that worried about the other ten sons having to travel to Egypt. Hey, it's dangerous. The ten of you go, Benjamin's staying here. And in addition to that, look at his brothers. They're still clueless. Their families are starving, and he looks at them and says, Why do you look at one another? Your families are starving. These ingenious brothers had no plan this time. Again, we see the dysfunction of God's covenant family. And in some cases, their dysfunction had even gotten worse. Let me rehearse this for you. The first son, Reuben, had committed incest with his father's concubine. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, were guilty of premeditated genocide. Number four son, Judah, had impregnated his, uh, the daughter-in-law, Tamar, and tried to have her burned in chapter 38. So when we look at the brothers of Joseph, this was a motley crew. These were hardened men. These were scandalous outlaws. James wasn't joking when he said that sometimes the church family can seem like a thousand drunk uncles. There may not be a thousand in this story, but there are ten extremely drunk uncles, his brothers. These patriarchs-to-be were less than promising, and their family was overflowing with broken relationships. There was a physical famine in the land but there was a spiritual famine in the family of God and God was going to use this physical famine to bring healing to the dysfunctional family of God he was bringing them to Egypt to be healed that's what we pick up the story in verse 6 the brothers traveled to Egypt And we're told that they go into the hall. And this hall would have been filled with crowds of people coming to buy food from the Egyptians. And through the crowd, can't you just imagine Joseph, his surprise when he spots his brothers. The text tells us that he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And that makes sense because the last time that they had seen Joseph, he was a 17-year-old wee punk. And now he's in his late 30s. He's dressed in Egyptian clothing, speaking a foreign language, and is this powerful ruler in Egypt. It's not surprising that they do not recognize him. And then, what is their first response? They bow down to him. Do you remember Joseph's dreams in chapter 37? Those promises are coming to fruition. It's just a good reminder That fighting against God's plan never works. Now, if I'm Joseph in this moment, all these years later, when the brothers finally show up, 
and they come and they bow before me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be like, surprise, it's me. I told you so. You got punked. I told you. I told you you were going to bow down to me. I can't wait to give it back to you right now. But that's not Joseph's response. What does he do? He doesn't tell them who he is because he wants to discern their hearts. He wants to test them before knowing how to respond. Can't you imagine the questions in his mind? Do my brothers still hate me? Is my beloved father still alive? Have they changed? Or are they still the same brothers who threw me in a pit and wouldn't listen when I pleaded with them for help? He knows if he simply reveals who he is that they would have said anything in order to save their lives. So you have to understand the heart of Joseph is to test the heart of his brothers. That what he's about to put them through over these next few verses is not vindictive, but it's actually redemptive. We see no trace of bitterness in Joseph in these two chapters. Three times we're told that he's overcome with compassion for his brothers and he weeps. And so he is not being vindictive, but he is being redemptive in what he's about to put the brothers through. What does he put them through? It's a path that should be very familiar to us. He actually puts his brothers through the exact same experiences that he had. Look at verse 7 and 8. How does he treat them? He treats them like strangers. Remember, they had treated Joseph like a stranger, refusing to even recognize that he was their brother. And in verse 9, he accuses them of being spies. Four times, Joseph accuses them of being spies. Do you remember the description of Joseph in Genesis 37? It says he would always come back and give an account to his father. And remember when his father sent him to Dothan? He said, go check up on your brothers. They viewed Joseph as a spy. And now Joseph is accusing them of being a spy. And in verse 17, he puts them in prison for several days. You see the parallel. They put him in a pit for several days. He was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife. He unjustly accuses them of being spies. And then in verse 24, he lets the other nine go, but he keeps one brother, Simeon, and binds him in foreign oppression. Joseph, too, had been bound in foreign oppression. And in verse 35, when he finally relents, and he sends nine brothers home with a half ton of food, he also uh, sneaks their silver back into their sacks. They took a brother for profit. Remember again? Remember the story of Joseph? They returned home to Jacob, a brother short, an incredible story, and flush with silver. How is it going to look this time? Hey, Jacob, we're back again. Hey, Dad. We have a great story. We're a brother short, but we have a lot of silver. Jacob's going to be a little curious about that. And in this story, it's beautiful. Because Joseph 
is putting his brothers through a similar experience to test them, all the while God is putting them through similar experiences in order to change them. Through their own distress, through this living parable, they are recognizing the stress that they put Joseph through. God, in this story, in His graciousness, is calling attention to their sin. You see, God was not just working for the good of Joseph in this story. He was working for the good of His brothers. And God, in His severe mercy, is taking Joseph's brothers by the hand. And He's pointing out places in their lives that are broken, that need to be healed. He alternates throughout this story ups and downs that mirror Joseph's life's trials and generosity in order to heal them, in order to break them, in order that they might receive the grace from the Lord. Isn't this often true? That the way that the Lord breaks His people is alternating truth and love. Derek Kidner wrote a commentary on Genesis and he summed it up so well. He said, Joseph's enigmatic treatment of them was a kinder and more searching test. Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of new attitudes in the brothers. Get this. As the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. Alternating sun and frost. Extreme heat and extreme cold can break apart the hardest materials. And in this story, we see extreme generosity of Joseph and extreme judgment of Joseph. And God is using those two things to break the hardest materials in the brothers their hearts. Friends, this is the story of Joseph and his brothers. But this is also the story of us. Can you see yourself in this story? Do you know that we have a brother, a favored son, whose name is Jesus? Do we recognize that we dismiss him? That we treat him as a stranger? that we ridicule Him at times, that we seek to kick Him out of our lives? Do we see ourselves that all the while we are doing this, God is continually working, that He is bringing these extreme temperatures into our lives to crack open our hearts so that we might receive the grace that He offers to us? I was reading through the Psalms this week and I came across Psalm 9412. I'd never really seen it before. And I think it perfectly summarizes this. It says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble. Sometimes God brings adversity in order to give us relief. Sometimes God allows trouble so that we might experience rest. 
The New Testament writers picked up on this theme as well. James preached an amazing sermon on it uh, this last year. And so you can look up Hebrews 12 sermon and see it. But Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. God is treating you as sons. These brothers who were mistreated by their earthly father are now being loved intently by their heavenly father. And we have to think about this word discipline. A lot of us may have a negative connotation with the word discipline, but the word discipline is the same Greek word in the New Testament where we get our word pediatrics. And what is pediatrics? Pediatrics is the oversight of the entire environment of a child so that the child receives whatever he or she needs to grow up strong and mature. God's discipline is His nurture. It's His pediatrics for His children. For our good, God disciplines us because He loves us. It's a hard truth, but it's a beautiful truth. Again, go and listen to James's sermon on this. But do you see this first point? The path A beautiful discipline where God gives sun and frost to break open the hearts of the brothers. And the application to us is that God sends sun and frost into our lives to break open our hearts to Him as well. In this story, we know that God works for the good of Joseph. And I can tell you today that God is working for our good. In this story, God didn't replace this dysfunctional covenant family and He will not replace us. God is working to redeem and heal Joseph's family. And friends, God is working to redeem and heal us. God didn't give up on His people and God's not going to give up on you. This is the story of us. The path of beautiful discipline. But then the second point I want you to see from this text is we have to consider how to respond to this beautiful discipline. And the response should be genuine repentance. We start to see hints of the brothers being changed in this story. First, we see their thinking changed. In chapter 42, in verses 21 to 22, after accused of being spies and thrown into prison, they begin to confess for the first time. Listen to what they say. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Their consciences are being awakened. And in verse 28, when they discover the silver in their sacks, their hearts are being convicted. It says, at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is it that God has done to us? Using the covenant name of God for the very first time in this story, the brothers begin to consider their relationship with the Lord. 
And not only does their thinking begin to change in these two chapters, but their actions begin to change. Remember how quick they were to get rid of Joseph. And now, in chapter 42 and 43, when they have the opportunity to get rid of Benjamin, listen to how they respond in verse 37. When the brothers refused, when Jacob refused to send Benjamin with them the first time, Reuben volunteered, said, Hey, if we don't bring Benjamin back, kill my two sons. Put them in my hands and I will bring him back to you. I thought, poor Reuben, you know. Still not good, but it's a start, right? At least he's thinking of somebody else other than himself, but instead he's like, kill my sons. When Jacob refused to send Benjamin with them the second time, Judah responded in chapter 43 and verse 8, send the boy with me and we will arise and go. I will be a pledge of his safety. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame. Surely it's tinted with self-preservation. But in these chapters, we are seeing the hint of genuine repentance in the brothers. And that's the question we need to consider for ourselves today. What is genuine repentance? What does it really look like to turn from our sin and turn towards Christ? I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism is really helpful. It says, what is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God and with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Paul described it in his letter to the Corinthians. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, where worldly grief produces death. We are beginning to see the salvation of Joseph's family through their repentance. Through this divine providence, God is seeking to awaken their conscience and to call them to return to Him. God is giving us the same opportunity today to turn from our sin and return to Him. God called the hard-hearted brothers and He calls to our hard hearts. God convicted the selfish brothers and He convicts our selfish souls. God comes to the broken and He will come to us the broken. God grants salvation to His people and God will grant salvation to you. This is a story of us. And how does this story in chapter 43 conclude? Peace, peace begins to come to the brothers. Joseph was being used as a sharp instrument to save his brothers. Not as a knife in the hand of a murderer, but as a scalpel in the hand of the master surgeon. And the result, I want you to see this, peace begins to come into their life. This word peace, it's at the end of chapter 43, is the Hebrew word shalom. It's translated welfare and peace here. Four times it's used at the end of chapter 43. And again, that echoes back to chapter 37. Why? In 43.23, that's when the steward of Joseph says to the brothers, Peace to you, 
Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in the sacks for you. Do you remember how it described Joseph's brothers? It says they had so much contempt for him that they could not even speak peace to him. And so in this story, even though his brothers could not speak peace to Joseph, Joseph is speaking peace to them. And then also in chapter 43, it says he inquired about their welfare, their peace, and their father's welfare. Do you remember the mission of Joseph when he was to go out to Dothan? He was to check on the welfare, the peace, the shalom of the family. And that mission was thwarted that time. But Joseph now is checking on the shalom and the peace of his family. Do you see the promises of God coming to fulfillment? We see that God is a God who makes promises, that we can rely on Him, and that He keeps all His promises, and that He is ruling and overruling all the details of our life, bringing sun and frost in order to break our hearts so that we might receive His grace. Friends, that's beautiful. There's a great story on the back of your bulletin. One of our new teenagers who came to faith in Christ Alexi will be baptizing her at the 1130 service. And I'll leave you with this. I love her testimony. Second to last paragraph, last sentence, she says, I remember being afraid because I didn't know if it was too late. I think I was wondering if there would be consequences for becoming a Christian so late. Now, and she's a teenager, right? You're thinking that's late? <laughs> now I know that becoming a Christian may take long but there are no consequences for that. As soon as God has you, you are always with the Lord and He will never let you go. Friends, it's never too late. Today is the day. Respond in repentance. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to the table, we ask that You would prepare us to receive Your grace. We ask that You might change us and transform us, that we would experience Your peace that You promise us as we take of this meal together. Father, we ask you to do this not because we deserve it, but because your son, Jesus Christ, earned it. In his name we pray. Amen.